We are returning to the book of Acts today, and uh, we're picking up where we left off in chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, that'd be great. Um, a little background before we head into this passage, starting in verse 19. Uh, the first part of the chapter uh, deals with the conversion of Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. And if you remember, uh, before his conversion, he had been one of the great persecutors of Christians because he was an absolutely dedicated, committed Pharisee of the Jewish faith. He had been taught that the Christians uh, were a threat. Jesus was no good to the faith, and uh, they needed to be stopped. And so as a high-functioning Pharisee, Saul took it upon himself, well, I can do that. I'm gonna, I'm, he became zealous in his efforts to stop Christians. Then one day, he's taking a trip to Damascus, and he even has official papers that he can apprehend Christians to haul them in for trial. And um, all of a sudden, on the road, there's this bright shining light because Jesus interrupts the journey and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a whole series of events where Paul is blinded by the light. He's led to the house of Ananias. Ananias places his hands on him and prays for him. It says the scales fell from his eyes and he was able to see. He took on food and he was converted by the saving grace of Jesus Christ and baptized. So, now what? What happens to this journey, this man's journey, as he's just been converted? And uh, we pick up the story in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, you'll realize that verse 19 is split in half. The first half goes with the previous, and the second half goes with what follows. So I'm going to start midway through verse 19. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and he, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So uh, he gets converted. What does he immediately do? It says he starts proclaiming the exact opposite of what he had been saying a few days earlier. Now, instead of Jesus and his followers being the worst criminals, he is one. Jesus is the Son of God, he says. He is a devoted follower all at once. What a change. What a change. He takes all of this personal zeal that he had against Christ, and in a moment's time, he turns it, and now he has all this same zeal for Christ. And people found it hard to believe. It says they were astonished. And I tell you, it is astonishing what Christ can do in a person's life. Have you ever seen somebody who was just so far from God become so close to God in a moment's time? <laughs> do you know it can happen? You may be here today and you don't think it can happen. You may be thinking that, I don't know that God can do that in my life. I, I, maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe I've done things that I shouldn't have. And I'm, I'm just way past, uh, I don't know that he could actually do what he did here, and I'm telling you, he can. And it probably gives you hope today. How many of you are praying for somebody who is far from God today, you know? Doesn't this give you hope? I'm praying for people that are far from God. Sometimes I wonder, 
Are they ever going to see the light? Is God ever going to reach their heart? Are they ever going to be able to turn and know the beauty of life with Christ that I, that I know? And this gives me hope. I keep praying. I keep praying. It's an encouragement to us. It says that the people were astonished, amazed at this change. And you have to understand, it doesn't say they were amazed at the power of His words. They were amazed at the change that had happened in his life. I mean, wasn't this the guy who just yesterday was killing Christians and now he is all about Christians and he's, he's I don't get this. Saul has this life-changing conversion and uh, he just doesn't skip a beat. He just redirects his zeal and... Uh, you have to understand, Saul was a very, very smart guy. He, uh, he was a leading Pharisee. He, he later writes that he was one of the best Jews the world had ever seen. You know, I was well-versed in theology, he says, completely obedient to the law. You didn't want to get in an argument theologically with this Saul Pharisee because he would always win the day. High-functioning Jew. So when he became a Christ follower, he immediately believes that uh, I have this... Uh, background now makes me the perfect person to be able to share about who Jesus really is. I don't want to put thoughts in his head, but he must have thought that God, God must feel somewhat fortunate to have me now. <laughs> I mean, he was smart. He, was, he could take on the rabbis theologically and... Uh, you know, as I work my way through this passage today, I see four stages in Saul's life, in his, uh, let's call it the discipleship process that he's in. And this, this first initial step is, I've, I've labeled it this way, I have much to offer God, this is easy. I think about when you're first a believer in Christ and you just... Life is so, so exciting, so different, so changed. Inside there is something that has happened that is just brightened the day, just opened up new avenues, and you go, man, I'm going to be a great Christian. Anybody ever thought that they could be a great Christian? I'm just going to be, yeah. I'm going to be so obedient. God is going to be so proud of me. I'm going to do lots of serving. Uh-huh. Sign up for a lot of stuff at church. I'm going to. And I'm going to stop all sinning. No more. Okay? Maybe, maybe a person has a talent or ability, and uh, I think God would find that very useful. So I'm just going to start using that for Him. And um, bottom line, I'm going to be really good at this Christian thing. And uh, you think about it. That, that kind of thinking just comes about naturally, doesn't it? It's the way the world works. Uh, you take a new job. What do you want to do? You want to do it well. You. You learn as fast as you can, you come in early, you go the extra mile, you stay late, uh, you want that first performance review to be glowing, and you give it everything that you have, you want your performance to be rated high. When you get married, you start out wanting to show your new spouse how good a partner you can be, lots of flowers, lots of candy, right? Lots of delicious meals, right? What eventually happens? You can't sustain your performance. It loses its impact. It's not as well-received anymore, let's say. And uh, 
What started out with such good intentions, I'm going to be such a good worker, such a good spouse, such a good Christian, it just all kind of collapses around you. It's no longer easy, but this whole Christian thing can become a chore. Anybody ever felt like walking with Jesus was a chore? Yeah. Maybe just plain difficult. Now, if you were Saul, Damascus Road, bright light, Jesus himself, scales fall from your eyes, what an experience. You just are so grateful for the new life Christ has given you. You're going to proclaim Jesus, proclaim him, and we're off and running. This is going to be so awesome. All these Jews are going to come to faith, and there's a revival going to happen in Damascus. Look what happens in verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted to, together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So I've labeled stage two, I have much opposition. This is difficult. Again, we can only imagine what's running through his mind. He has this experience, and uh, I've given you my natural abilities, Lord, and uh, I thought we were going to make a powerful, successful team. <laughs> you ever thought that with God? You and him together make a good team? <laughs> it's all him. Paul had to think, wait, instead of converting Jews, they want to kill me. I'm even running for my life. My, my, the few friends that I do have, they let me over the wall in this basket so that I can escape with them, my life. And uh, Maybe you thought this way. If I were Paul, I would be thinking, I was proclaiming Jesus. This should have turned out a whole lot better. His efforts at being a good Christian were not being fruitful and successful. So I ask this question, aren't you glad we don't have what it takes to be a Christian? Amen. I am so glad I don't have what it takes. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 14 years of age, and I was raised in a Christian home, and, uh, but when I was 14 at a, at a summer youth camp, Jesus became so real to me. He changed my life. He delivered me. He saved me. He rescued me. I felt different from the inside out, and, and it, it, he, I just knew that he loved me so much, and I loved him so much, and uh, I kind of did what Paul did in this passage. I, I immediately vowed that I was going to be a good Christian. <laughs> I was going to stop my sinning. <laughs> I was going to give him my talents and my skills. I said, okay, Lord, you can, have, you can have these skills. I started playing and singing in church, and I... I I, uh, I put stickers on my, uh, Jesus changed my life, stickers on my notebook at school and on my window, uh, my bedroom window, so people that walked by could see Jesus changed my life. I did everything that I thought was going to be a successful venture in my new Christian journey. And three years later, I'm, I find myself driving down the road um, in uh, north of Denver, where I was raised, on I-25, and I am just in tears because I found myself to be a very bad Christian. <laughs> a 
Last week, I drove down that same stretch of I-25 north of Denver when I was in Colorado, and I thought of that night. In spite of all my effort, and, uh, and I just couldn't do it. It was too hard, and the, and the harder I, I tried to be godly, the more I realized how I wasn't, and I was so still so selfish. Why can't I get over being selfish? You ever thought that? Why can't I just not be selfish anymore? I realized I still wanted recognition. I wanted people to notice the stuff that I did, and I still recognized how much sin was in my life. And uh, It was a seminal moment in my life because I'm driving down the road, and I remember myself saying, Lord, I give up. I can't do this. I quit. I would later learn that God actually loves it when we say that. (laughs) Saul leaves Damascus. He heads to Jerusalem to meet the disciples. His own efforts to proclaim Jesus have now rendered themselves unfruitful and They want to kill him in Damascus, and so I'm going to go to friendly territory, Jerusalem, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, (laughs) not believing that he was a disciple. This is just not turning out very well. This living for Christ can not only be difficult, it can be impossible. That's why I put stage three, I have nothing, this is impossible. Not the people at Damascus, not the people in Jerusalem, not my old crowd, not my new crowd. How come it has to be so painful and maybe even lonely and impossible? And, uh, and I thought, have I ever felt that I, I had tried so hard to please God, done so many good things for Him, and yet found myself to be so unfruitful and so alone and so broken? And if you ever get to that point, you really have a decision to make. You can decide that um, this is just the way it is. This is as good as it's ever going to be, and you just plow on, plow forward, and uh, you ignore the nagging sense of failure and the nagging sense that it ought not be this way, but you just accept that this side of heaven is just going to be a constant Struggle, struggle, struggle. Dan Stone, in his book, The Rest of the Gospel, which is being studied in the class, uh, says this, many people finally conclude that's how the Christian life is supposed to be. They tried and they tried and they tried, and they couldn't do it, they couldn't do it, and they couldn't do it, so I guess it's just always struggle. He goes on to say, I've actually heard ministers tell their congregations that truly victorious living is impossible and that the Christian life is nothing but a struggle in which you are going to experience defeat after defeat. Wouldn't you like to go to that church? He says, that's a far cry from the abundant life Jesus has promised us. Amen. But that's one choice people make. They just go, I just, I can't, I, I, just, I fail at it, I can't do it, so I'm just going to resign. I got heaven at least. That's one choice. The other choice is to do what I did on I-25 north of Denver, just give up. He loves it when you give up. 
because you can't do it anyway. <laughs> and just start trusting Him. Quit trying. Start trusting. Jesus said He, he had come to give us life and that, he would, that we would have it abundantly, but it is not our life. He is going to give us Himself. Again, Dan Stone, we can walk around for years with a sense of forgiveness, but no sense of life. We have the life in us, but we don't know it. We try and try to generate the life ourselves, but we are doomed to failure because it's impossible for us to generate this life. God is telling us, I will share my glory with no man. Only I can live my life, but I will impart my life to you. I will give you the life and I will live it through you. That sets a person free. In order for us to grasp the depth of this truth, engage with it, connect with it, embody it, a death has to occur in us. And we have to recognize this death. And sometimes... Death to self and death to the past and death to the old ways and death to the whole world system can be so excruciatingly painful because we are trying to hold on. A.W. Tozer has this famous line, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Alan Redpath says, When God wants to do an impossible task, He takes an impossible man and crushes him. And i got to tell you, those are good statements. Those are beautiful statements. Those are life-giving statements. It's the path to greatness in the kingdom. So many scriptures on it. Luke 9, 24, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Isn't it glorious to lose your life? Amen. Saul is recognizing what Jesus had done in his life. There on that Damascus road, the old Saul, the old Saul seeking all that success was put to death. He died. And most people, when they start out with Jesus, they think they have what it takes to live for Him. And uh, God has to work in their life in such a way to bring them to a point where they wave the white flag, I give up, I can't, I surrender. It's just Christ, and Christ alone. Somewhere along the way, Saul got it. <laughs> he realized what happened on that Damascus road. He realized that the old... Him was dead and gone, and he had been resurrected to new life. Because he writes this over in Philippians, More than that, I count all things, all things. This is a type A, high-functioning high Pharisee. This, this go-getter of all go-getters writes this, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Stage four, I have Jesus. This is beautiful. Amen.
You know, tonight we're going to baptize 15 or 16 people into baptism, this, this beautiful gift from God. And uh, it's, it's such a beautiful symbol, illustration of, of what has taken place in a person's life. And each person, they go under the water. It, 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 it is symbolic. It represents death. There's this grave, this going under this, this old us that thought it had what it, what it needed to live the Christian life and, or, or thought it had what it needed to be called a good person to realize it was all folly. And so all of that is being put to death. The old us saw, seeking recognition. Sinful. Even found our significance in the world and its successes. And it's buried, it's dead, it's left in the grave. But guess what? We don't leave them there. Now, if you're being baptized, that's good news, right? We don't leave them there. They come exploding out of the water just as Jesus broke out. We sang it earlier, he broke out of the tomb to a new and resurrected, completely different life. The old is forever gone. And I say, praise the Lord. I don't want to go back. And the new is forever present. And maybe there's some of you here today that just need to hear that because the world has pulled you back into some old man thinking. You fear for the future. You have too many problems you can't fix. The shame of your sin has you paralyzed. Your stress level is growing daily. Will the world ever be the same? Is America collapsing? The election is a month away and the president has the virus. What's happening? What are we going to do? We're all susceptible to this. I don't care how far down our journey we get. We're all susceptible to getting pulled back in, thinking temporal, thinking worldly. I want to say we're all susceptible because I'm susceptible. <laughs> so I'm dragging you in here with me, okay? 2020 has been very difficult for me. It will always be known in my life as the year of COVID and cancer. And uh, trying to manage these two stress-producing intrusions into my family and my ministry have uh, been challenging. But God is so faithful. He brought me to a place of retreat over the last couple of weeks and uh, he let me know, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad I'm not worrying? Doesn't, come on, doesn't that just... I don't have to worry. This is all so temporary. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not even talking about cancer. I'm talking about all of it. It's all so temporary. 
All that worldly, temporary, old man grave stuff is not who we are. I am risen with Christ. And He walks with me and He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. Amen? He loves me. He loves you. And when we know that, not a whole lot else matters. <laughs> Just does it. And so I'm here to tell you, believers in Christ, it makes no sense for resurrected, alive people to go back and live in the tomb. <laughs> it makes no sense. You have come out of the water. You've been resurrected. The old you is dead, dead, dead. Leave him alone. He's gone. He's dead. Rise up. Stop living in the grave. It's time to live the resurrected life that we have been so graciously given. <laughs> Father, I just love you today. I love you for so very much. I, I, I'm thankful, Father, that you pursue us. You are constantly bringing situations to bear in our life that show the futility of this world and uh, the hope that is only found in you. And Father, I pray for the individuals who may be here today who have not come to faith yet in you and perhaps have had bad information about what grace is and what you've done for them and uh, what this new life is all about, that they may in these moments just surrender their life and just say, Lord, I, I just want this new life that you offer. I, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to turn away from it and I want to know the reality of your life living in me. I want a future and a hope. I don't want, to, I don't want my future to be like my past. And I pray in these moments they would just talk to you about that. Pray that prayer. And Father, for all those that are worried today or fearful, anxious, I'm praying, Father God, that uh, you would give them this 30,000-foot view of what is so temporary, what is so fleeting, the moment that will be gone. And give them this picture of your life, your cross, your empty tomb, working and moving and rising within them, Father. In many ways, Father, we're just your kids saying thank you. Thank you, Father. Let's stand together.